bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 5th, 2019. Two years ago this week, the Investing Opportunities Act was reintroduced in both houses of Congress. Now, the act was first introduced in the House and Senate in April of 2016. But since the act wasn't passed during the 114th Congress, the bill needed to be reintroduced in the 115th Congress, which happened two years ago this week. Now, the original Opportunity Zones legislation was actually similar to like-kind exchanges in that the actual sales price of an asset needed to be invested in qualifying property as opposed to only the amount of the gain realized. To correct that, when the bill was reintroduced in the Senate in February of 2017 by Tim Scott and 10 co-sponsors, the reinvestment required was reduced to the amount of gain realized, thus increasing the potential for opportunity zones. Now in the House, the updated bill was reintroduced by Representative Pat Tiberi and 31 co-sponsors. And from there, a modified version of the Investing Opportunities Act was included in the tax reform legislation that passed in 2017, thus creating Opportunity Zones. Now, Representative Tiberi has since retired from Congress, but I was proud to help present him with the 2019 Housing Credit Champion Award on behalf of the Forward Tax Credit Coalition last week. And in presenting the award, I did note Congressman Tiberi's championship of community development incentives, including Opportunity Zones. Another Opportunity Zones anniversary also occurred this week, actually one year ago today to be precise. Novogradic debuted our Opportunity Zones Resource Center. This resource center offers Opportunity Zones news, guidance, tools, and more. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. It's www.opportunityzonesresourcecenter.com. I'll tweet out the link as well. Now, let's turn to this week's podcast. We have lots of news to share with you. We're going to start with a brief summary of some of the government shutdown's effects on affordable housing, community development, and historic preservation. From there, we have an update on a possible vehicle for extending many expired tax provisions, commonly known as tax extenders. We also have news regarding efforts to reform the nation's housing finance infrastructure, an effort that has Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at the epicenter. I'll also have news about updated national median income estimates, as well as a request to the IRS to clarify a particular use of multifamily private activity bonds. So, if you're ready, let's get started. It has now been 11 days since the end of the partial federal government shutdown, and things are ramping back up. This amidst the threat of another shutdown in a mere 10 days. Now, another shutdown looms because the continuing resolution agreement that ended the shutdown will expire February 15th. That's a week from this Friday, a mere 10 days from now. Now, as we discussed last week, the partial shutdown had a dramatic effect on affordable housing, community development, and historic preservation. Perhaps the area most affected was the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, where the renewals of housing contracts were put on hold during the 35-day shutdown. Only 325 HUD staff out of more than 7,000 HUD employees reported for work during the shutdown. As we've reported, more than 1,000 
HUD housing contracts expired during the shutdown. Well, HUD is now up and running. HUD is renewing Section 8 project-based rental contracts with an emphasis, as you'd expect, on contracts that weren't renewed during the shutdown. Now, HUD is apparently starting with those that expired in December and working forward from there. HUD does hope to renew hundreds of contracts before February 15th. That's the date when the continuing resolution expires, as I noted earlier. Now, regarding the Section 202 HUD program for low-income seniors, Leading Age is reporting that there's no guarantee that those contracts will be renewed before the current continuing resolution expires. Leading Age is an advocacy group for housing and health care for seniors, if you aren't aware. Now, HUD obviously wasn't the only area of government affected by the shutdown. As we reported last week, the announcement of the 2018 New Marcus Tax Allocations uh, was delayed by the shutdown. That's because the CDFI fund oversees the program and its NMTC program staff were furloughed during the shutdown. Last week, the new director of the CDFI fund said that the organization is assessing the impact of the shutdown and does expect to provide updates and information soon. Jody Harris was supposed to become the CDFI fund director in January, replacing outgoing director Annie Donovan. But uh, Director Harris's first day was during the shutdown, so she officially began service January 28th. Harris's announcement did say that the CDFI fund staff is working to minimize the effects of the shutdown. Now, on the new market tax allocations front, they were scheduled to be released sometime this, this winter, but the shutdown likely pushed the award announcement to late March or early April. Now, the 2018 Capital Magnet Fund announcements were also delayed. We'll share more information about those delays in a future podcast. Now, looking at the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program, it was affected by the shutdown as well. The National Park Service administers the Federal Historic Tax Credit, and according to discussions that the Historic Tax Credit Coalition had with Brian Gokin of the National Park Service, the entire team that processes those applications was furloughed for the entire shutdown. That's the processing of part one, part two, and part three. Now this obviously created a substantial backlog of applications at the National Park Service. The National Park Service itself asked state historic preservation offices to hold on to submissions during the shutdown so files wouldn't be misplaced while in transit. Now those materials are now being received in Washington. And for example, in just a single day last week, several dozen boxes were delivered. And that's just a third of the expected backlog. I do want to give a shout out or a hat tip to Merrill Hoopengardner of the National Trust Community Investment Corporation for sharing these National Park Service insights with us. The National Park Service expects to work through the backlog in the order the files are received, by the way. The National Park Service has also created a portal to check on the status of your submission. That portal is updated daily, and I've included the link to that, in the, to that portal in today's show notes and on my Twitter feed. Yet another casualty of the partial shutdown was the schedule, the timing for the federal budget. The budget was supposed to be submitted to Congress yesterday. However, the administration won't release President Trump's budget request this week. This according to reporting by Political and others. The president makes the annual State of the Union speech tonight, but the associated budget request will wait. By the way, I will live tweet tax aspects of the State of the Union speech. 
I certainly do expect Opportunity Zones to make a cameo. Turning to the Office of Management Budget, it is working on the revised schedule for releasing the budget. This revised schedule for releasing the budget is taking into account the fact that most of the federal employees who prepared the budget request were furloughed. Now, Reuters reported last week that the White House is going to call for at least a 5% cut in domestic spending. That would be across the board. Of course, the administration has proposed similar cuts in the past, the past two years, and Congress, as you know, went a different direction. Now, while the president will be late with his budget, Democrats in the House representatives say they plan to complete their budget on time. What is that? Well, Congress is supposed to complete work on a budget resolution by no later than April 15th. Congress does, though, regularly miss that deadline. And even assuming the House does complete its work on a budget, that budget's chances of passing in the Republican-controlled Senate is virtually zero. Actually, it's probably not virtually zero. It's probably just zero. Nevertheless, work on the budget will set the stage for the annual appropriations process for fiscal year 2020. This will undoubtedly result in months of negotiations. All of that said, there was some good news for community development after the federal government reopened. One of the first announcements by the IRS was that it set a date for a hearing on the proposed Opportunity Zones regulations that were released in October. That hearing will be February 14th, which is a week from this Thursday. And conveniently, it's one day before February 15th, the next possible government shutdown date. The hearing will be at the IRS building in Washington, D.C. The Opportunity Zones regulations that were released in October were merely the first tranche of guidance. This hearing concerns that first tranche of guidance. More guidance is expected soon, a second tranche, likely in the next few weeks. More specifically, there's a good chance we're going to hear soon that the guidance has been submitted to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs within the Office of Management and Budget. It'll then take 10 to 45 days, a bit of a span, before the Office of Management and Budget would return the regulations to Treasury, probably the middle of that range, but it's hard to tell. Treasury would then publish the guidance 24 to 48 hours after release by the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. In fact, as we said last week, a group of seven senators and nine members of the House of Representatives have sent a letter to the IRS seeking guidance and giving suggestions about IRS guidance. We shared a breaking news email on the five key points that, that they included in their letter. And in case you missed that breaking news email, I'll tweet out a link to the news item. Let's talk now about tax extenders. It's a topic of interest to many of our listeners. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, said the best way to pass tax extenders is this month's legislation to fund the Department of Homeland Security, IRS, and other agencies, essentially avoiding another government shutdown and attaching tax extenders to the legislation that does that. Now, Chairman Grassley specifically cited some incentives that expired at the end of 2017, saying that those provisions extend, getting those provisions extended is his top priority. One of those provisions that did expire in 2017 was the Section 45L credit. That's a $2,000 credit per unit for energy-efficient homes, and it's a credit that a lot of our affordable rental housing uh, developments are eligible for. 
Now the deadline for the funding bill is February 15th, and House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal has said his committee's also considering extenders. Now meanwhile, on the technical corrections front, congressional Democrats said that they could use a technical corrections bill to correct last year's tax reform legislation, but they would use that to get other incentives passed. More specifically, the chief tax counsel for the House Ways and Means Committee told Bloomberg that Democrats are willing to discuss legislation to fix errors in the tax reform legislation. But chief tax counsel Andrew Grossman said that such legislation would involve what he called, and here I quote, heavy negotiation, end quote, between the parties. Such a technical corrections bill could conceivably be paired with such things as a 4% minimum rate for the low-income housing tax credit, a long-term extension for the new Marcus tax credit, as well as the inclusion of energy storage devices in eligible bases for the investment tax credit. I know, energy storage device, that's just a fancy name for a battery. Well, we'll keep you posted in future podcasts and on Twitter regarding the progress of tech corrections legislation and what items might be included as sweeteners for House Democrats. Next, I have some updates on housing finance reform efforts. Senate Banking Committee Chairman Mike Crapo of Idaho on Friday of last week released an outline for housing finance reform legislation. Chairman Crapo calls for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to be taken out of conservatorship and made into mortgage guarantors in the private sector. Now, Fannie and Freddie's multifamily business would be sold and operated independently. The legislation is also predicated on additional guarantors entering the market. Crapo's plan would eliminate, as well, Fannie and Freddie's affordable housing goals and duty to serve requirements and instead replace them with a market access fund. This market access fund would finance loans, grants, and credit enhancements to support affordable home ownership and rental housing. In fact, the Housing Trust Fund, the Capital Magnet Fund, as well as this market access fund would be collectively funded through an annual assessment of 10 basis points of the total loan volume that was guaranteed by Fannie, Freddie, and the additional guarantors that would form. So, what would replacing duty-to-serve requirements with a market access fund mean for affordable housing? Well, this overall proposal in this change is good for the existing housing trust fund and capital magnet fund, but it would hurt the three underserved areas that are currently helped by the duty-to-serve mandate. These three areas are rural housing, affordable housing preservation, and manufactured housing. The duty-to-serve mandate also ensures Fannie and Freddie effectively target certain less desirable market segments, which the affordable housing goals are designed to achieve. Now, at this time, Crapo's outline of reform legislation doesn't appear to give any hint as to how Fannie and Freddie's low-income housing tax credit investments would change, if at all. Now, as I said, this is just an outline of proposed legislation. Not only is it just an outline, but House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters of California is most certainly going to have a significantly different version of housing finance reform than Chairman Crapo has. Now, Crapo and Waters will need to compromise to get a housing finance reform bill to President Trump's desk. And that is not going to be an easy task. Now, I mentioned in a previous podcast, Acting Federal Housing Finance Agency 
or FHFA director, Joseph Odding, had reportedly discussed with agency staff plans to take Fannie and Freddie out of conservatorship, doing this without legislation, and that plans would be announced in the coming weeks. This had been reported by MarketWatch. Well, the White House released a statement last week that walked that back a bit. As in the statement, the White House pledged to work with Congress on any plans to end conservatorship, as well as housing finance reform in general. As an aside, the Senate Banking Committee is expected to hold the nomination hearing next week for President Trump's nominee for a permanent director of FHFA, that being Mark Calabria. Now, in some other news, we at Novograd and Company have lowered our estimate as to how much the national median income will increase this year. The Congressional Budget Office released its 10-year budget and economic outlook last week. Now, the new numbers coming from our team reduced the expected increase in national median income from 5.15% to 5.01%, still a pretty substantial increase. Now, that matters because the national median income is a factor in determining HUD's income limits. Our estimate of the change, by the way, in median income for 2020 remains the same. Now, I've included a link to our rent and income limit estimator in today's show notes, as well as on my Twitter feed. And on the affordable rental housing front, the National Association of Bond Lawyers sent a letter to the IRS last week requesting clarification as to whether a preference can be given to veterans in rental housing that's financed with multifamily productivity bonds. This is a significant issue that has been around for many months now and has slowed, delayed, halted the closing of many transactions. The issue goes like this. A requirement for private activity bonds is that the rental housing that they finance be available to members of the general public. But many states' qualified allocation plan for low-income housing tax credits give preferences to set-asides for veterans. So the question is whether the veterans' preference violates the general public use requirement. Now, if the IRS doesn't provide guidance that such a preference is allowable in the context of multifamily housing bonds, then Congress is going to need to step in and provide clarification through legislation. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Just a reminder, though, the February issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits has a special focus on the Committee Reinvestment Act, or CRA. We have several articles focusing on CRA reform and how that could affect investments in opportunity zones, local housing tax credits, new markets tax credits, historic tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits. The February issue is available now. If you're not a subscriber to the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, remember that you have until February 28th to claim a 25% discount on journal subscriptions. We're offering the 25% discount to celebrate our 10th year of publication. I'll tweet the discount code and the subscription link. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Novogratik. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. 
Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.